All right. Well, today we're continuing the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles and you like to follow along, we are in chapter 14, for those of you who like to do that sort of thing. And uh, before I get started, though, a little story. When Cindy and I lived in Lesotho, which is this little green spot in a, of a country that's surrounded by South Africa, there was a neighboring village where a Mennonite... And uh, because Cindy and I lived in this small town that actually had things like a store in the town and, uh, and running water, uh, a lot of people would come and stay with us while they were going to their extended villages, other Peace Corps volunteers, which Cindy and I were, or other missionaries would, would spend the night with us and then go to their village because the bus would end uh, at our town and then they would disperse from there. And there was this... Uh, one fellow we got to know, and he worked with this group called the Mennonite Central Committee. And the Mennonite Central Committee is a social justice and humanitarian organization which is based on the ethics and teachings of Jesus. But they're very focused, they're not really an evangelistic uh, organization, they're mostly about social justice and things like that. And one didn't have to be a Mennonite to join the Mennonite Central Committee, you just had to be a confessing Christian and a pacifist, which means a person that... Uh, is not willing to do violence to another person under any circumstances at all. They would rather be killed than kill. And that's, that's the Mennonite tradition, along with other traditions like the Quakers. They're called peace churches. And as a result, you had a, a pretty wide spectrum among people who worked with the Mennonite Central Committee. They were all Christians, but they had different backgrounds. Yeah, there was one guy who was named Terry. He was Terry the Mennonite Mennonite because he, worked for the, he was a Mennonite who worked for the Mennonites. There's a guy named Steve. We called Steve the Baptist Mennonite. There was Arlie, who was the Anglican Mennonite. You know, they all worked for the Mennonite Central Committee, but they weren't all necessarily themselves Mennonites. And the, and the Mennonite guy, when we first arrived, uh, his name was Terry. He was a deep believer, but he was also more concerned about the social justice aspects. And the reason why he had been sent... Uh, to the particular village that he was at was because there was a dam that was being built uh, in the area. It was called Katsi Dam. And this is after it's done. When Cindy and I were there, they were building it. And the people, the people couldn't fathom. They just couldn't get their heads around the idea of how much was going to be flooded because of these dams. There was going to be a series of three dams. And as a result, they were, there was really no plan in place. No one had any plan to, for the people who lived in, the, in these valleys. That the villages were going to be flooded out. They were going to be displaced. Because it was a very mountainous country, uh, there wasn't a lot of land that was good for growing things on. And so this dam was going to take up a lot of this. And so uh, Terry's, the Mennonite Mennonite, his focus was really on trying to get a plan in place for these folks. And what the, the Mennonite Central Committee did is they rented a hut for uh, the missionaries to live uh, in near the area. And the hut that the, the MCC had rented from was uh, owned by the village of Maruti. And what a Maruti was was basically a village priest. And, it, and it, what that meant differed from village to village. If the village was more in the traditional, uh, we might say shamanistic, uh, traditional religion, that's what the Maruti did. Some villages were very heavily affected by the Catholic Church because the country had been heavily evangelized by the Catholic Church. So sometimes Maruti kind of had more of a Catholic leaning to them. Uh, there was other villages that had the kind of a, what we would call a free evangelical leaning to them. And so they, the MCC missionary lived in this village in a hut that was rented by the local Maruti. 
Well, eventually Terry left and this other guy came in with his family. He actually had a wife and a child. And they, they moved into the village and he had the same thing. He was supposed to be working for the people to get a plan in place for when these villages got flooded out. But this guy was much more conservative and, uh, and more evangelistic. And it didn't take long that Cindy and I began to hear some rumors coming from this village that there was some tension going on between Maruti and the new missionary that was there from the MCC. And what it, came, what it really came down to is that the Maruti, uh, for the Christians, on Sunday morning would perform a Christian service, like, a, like, like this. They would have church. And in the evenings, he would perform a traditional religion, shamanistic uh, religious service for people who were non-Christians. And the, the new missionary had a very hard time getting his head around the idea that this guy had this dual role. He was the Christian pastor, if you will, of the village. And then for other people, he was, you know, just to not put too fine a point on it, the pagan uh, pastor for this village at the same time. And this new, this new guy that came in, that just kind of blew his mind. He didn't know what to do with that. He struggled with that very deeply. He, he talked with the Maruti about it. The Maruti and him started knocking heads. And he advised the MCC, the Mennonite Central Committee, they probably shouldn't uh, be working with this Maruti anymore. But the Maruti was equally amazed that the missionary would have any problem with his dual role. He couldn't understand, what's, what's your problem? Why do you have a problem? with? Yeah, I'm, I'm the Christian pastor for these folks. I'm the shamanistic pastor for these folks. What's the problem here? And he recommended to the Mennonite Central Committee that they reevaluate who they send as missionaries. And, uh, and just to let you know, just because you probably some of you are kind of wondering, well, where did you think? What do you think about this? Uh, I think the new missionary had a legitimate point about, the, about this dual uh, role of this Maruti. Because you can't be both Christian and shamanistic at the same time. It's just, it, they just don't go together. Like one time I had a lady come to uh, IBCD here, and she doesn't attend here, but she was from a Hindu background, and she very much wanted, she felt under oppression by evil spirits, and she wanted to, to know Jesus and bring Jesus into her life. But in the course of conversation, I realized that she wanted to bring Jesus into her life along with all the other Hindu gods that she worshipped, and when I told her it's either Jesus or nothing, blew her mind. You know, she didn't know what to do with that. And these are, these are these kind of, you know, these cross-cultural, you know, things that we work with throughout the world, things I never dealt with when I was in Oregon. But as we consider uh, the, the intensity and kind of how, you know, strange this, these things are, you know, I, I think about the conversations I have among my brothers and sisters about things like, predestination and free will and you know infant baptism versus believers baptism and in comparison those those conversations and debates which can get pretty intense at times seem pretty minor compared to you know a, a priest who's both christian and pagan at the same time and as we go through the gospel of matthew today we're going to be looking at one of the most beloved stories in the gospels and it's the account of peter's attempt to walk on the water and it's it's one of these stories that has drama it has the miraculous, and yet within the drama and the miraculous, there's a very relatable story of faith. But it's more than just a story of having faith, and we're going to get to that later. So let's start by reading Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 22. Now, this is directly following the feeding of the 5,000. So if you remember the story, this whole course of events, Jesus gets word 
from John the Baptist's disciples that John has been executed. Jesus wants to go and be alone, but the crowd follows him. So then he, he preaches to the crowd, teaches them, feeds the 5,000. And then this picks up after this. It says, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get back into the boat and go ahead of him on the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, just kind of get the setting here. It's interesting that within the language, the Greek, that you have this sense of Jesus almost pushing these guys into the boat. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. That's not, that's not just a, a, a form of translation. That immediacy is there. It's almost Jesus is pushing these guys into the boat and saying, leave. And then he dismisses the crowd. Leave. And then the, the scripture says, after he had dismissed them, he went on a mountainside by himself to pray. I think this is why you have this immediacy. Jesus wanted to be alone after he heard about the death of John the Baptist. But in his first attempt to be alone, the crowd followed him. And so when he's done helping the crowd, teaching the crowd, feeding the crowd, he puts the disciples, go. He tells the crowd, go. And he goes upon a mountainside by himself to pray. And when the evening came, he was there alone. So the scripture is trying to let us know Jesus is very much in this place. He wants some time alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. Uh, and so, I, like how we would describe things today. And so that's the so Sea of Galilee, uh, this lake, it's the same thing. During the fourth, so he walked out. Then when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Now, that word is important. They were terrified. We've read, we've read the story so often, I think we read over some of the big words in here. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So they were terrified, crying out in fear. This is like a horror movie for them. They weren't just like, hmm, that's interesting. And they weren't just a little bit like, ooh, a little bit got the goosebumps. You know, they were, ah, what is this thing? You know, they were terrified, crying out in fear. It says, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied. So again, there's a question in there. He's not sure. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, the scripture again, these are important words, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. It's funny that now the disciples are beginning to clue in after all the things they've done with him, right? Truly, you are the Son of God. Huh. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. So I've already mentioned that this story is one of the favorites that has been preached on. And there's been lots and lots of sermons on it, and very often the focus is on Peter from two different points of view. Usually it's Peter's failure of faith. Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? But some people say, well, you know, also Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. So there's also an exercise of faith which took place as well. 
that none of the other disciples were willing to take. But what I find interesting is the, the struggle the disciples were having, which I've never heard anyone really explore. Because again, we see in the disciples' reaction, when they see Jesus, their reaction is, is one of being terrified. And they think they're seeing a ghost. Now just kind of let that sink in for a little bit. They're terrified, they believe they're seeing a ghost, and they're crying out in fear. So this is a, a very emotionally traumatic moment for the disciples. It'd be like, you know, it seems like some, you know, if you've ever watched some horror movie, like seeing, you know, Jason from the Friday the 13th franchise walking in with his chainsaw and people freaking out. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about there, and it's probably good that you don't. But others of you do, you know, you get the gist. There's like, there's this terror in what they're seeing. But Jesus replies to him, you know, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And then Peter has this interesting response. You know, he says, Lord, if it's you. There's a question in Peter's mind still. Who is this? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And so when the disciples see this Jesus coming towards them, their thoughts immediately go to what? It's a ghost. Their thoughts immediately go to the superstitions they've grown up with in their life. Their thoughts go to these, and, and you would say, well, you know, why are they so superstitious? Well, part of the reason is because they were fishermen. If you've ever been around people who work on the water or live on the water, you, will find a, you won't find a more superstitious group out there. Uh, like in Scotland, there's a whole industry around the Loch Ness Monster. A whole industry. Movies, books, television shows, uh, you know, gifts, uh, going there just to kind of see this, this monster, which there has been never any clear picture of this thing. And most of the pictures that have been seen have been proven to be false, but people believe it. They believe in Nessie. Nessie's out there somewhere. He's out in the water. He's in the loch. You've got to be careful, you know? It's, it's the superstition. There's no proof of the Loch Ness Monster. In my area of the world, it's Bigfoot. Everyone's like, ooh. There's like, I had, a, I had an anthropology professor who spent every summer looking for Bigfoot, and then he would go out, and he would be getting, and during the, the school year, he would put on these seminars of, you know, you hear that cry, ooh, that's Bigfoot. You know, people pay the money to go to the seminars, and, and I'm telling you, these guys be very convincing. You walk out going, there's Bigfoot. He's, he's out there. And, you know, but no one has ever seen, there's no, there's no proof of this. There's a couple of hair samples, things like that. There are Christians that do the same thing, by the way, and you need to be careful. There are Christians that claim they know where, for example, the Ark of the Covenant is or where Noah's Ark is, and they'll, they'll have these little videos where they show them all their machinery that they're going to look for the Ark if they just had a little bit more money to go and search for the Ark. And then people go, okay. And funny enough, they never seem to find it. You know, but they always come back. We're just that far away from it, just that far away. You know, so there's these things that go on all the time, and you have to be aware of, you know, some of it's legitimate, some of it's not. But these guys were very superstitious. And I guess considering the time and the fact most of them were fishermen, they lived on the water, maybe that's understandable. But is it really? I mean, shouldn't these disciples by now come to expect the unexpected with Jesus? And shouldn't they by now be used to the fact that he does miracles? Should they be taken so off guard over the fact that he's walking on the water toward them? Just a few hours earlier, they themselves were participating in a miracle of Christ. 
They themselves were feeding the 5,000. Why would they immediately go from this, this emotional and spiritual mountaintop of having been in the place where they get to participate in a miracle to when they see this thing, they go immediately to their superstition. It's a ghost. And immediately into the place of being terrified. And immediately into the place of crying out in fear. And Peter, when he says, Lord, if it's you, you know, he's not, even he's not sure. And, I, and looking back in hindsight, I don't know if, if it's really the best thing. Is If you really believe that this might be a malevolent spirit that wants to drown everybody and sink the boat, I don't know if the best way to test that spirit is, hey, if it's you, tell me to get out of the boat and come walk on the water toward you. Because if you're a bad spirit, you'd be like, sure, come on out. You know, and just watch him drown. But, you know, I don't think Peter was thinking all that clearly at that moment. Peter had a, had a tendency to be speaking in his brain about two steps behind most of the time. But the important thing is, though, and this is important, Peter steps out of his superstitions at this moment, and he steps into faith. When he sees Christ, and you have to remember there's a storm going on, it's not normal to see a guy walking on water. And in fact, one of the Gospels says it looked like Jesus was just going to pass him by. Like he was like, okay, you guys are in the boat. You've got that. I'm just going to pass you by. I'll meet you there. And, uh, and so Jesus isn't worried about them, but they're worried. But Peter does something pretty amazing there. He sets aside his fear. He sets aside his fear of ghosts. He sets aside his false beliefs. And he moves out into faith. And when he moves out into faith, he walks in the water. He kind of transcends the world around him has his eyes on Jesus and is able to overcome those places of fear, those places of superstition. And he does something extraordinary. The scripture says, Then Peter got down off the boat, out of the boat, and he walked on water and came toward Jesus. But then he saw the wind and he was afraid, and he goes back into his place of fear, and he begins to sink. As he goes, and he goes into his fear, he begins to sink further into the water, but to give Peter credit, he cries out to Jesus. Jesus grabs his hand and pulls him up. And so how, I want to transition this then to you, and I want to ask you a question. And some of you, I know what your answer immediately will be to this question, but I want you to think about it and hear me out. Are you superstitious? Do you believe, and I'm, and I'm going to qualify superstition as, as this, do you believe that there are forces outside the Bible context, the biblical context, that you believe affect your life? Spiritual forces. Now, there's a difference between being superstitious and believing in the supernatural. You know, I believe in the supernatural. God is supernatural. I believe in angels, demons, they exist and all that. But what I'm talking about is those places of superstition where you believe something else has some kind of control over your life that is outside the biblical context and really has no link to the biblical context. And let me give you an example, and, and I pick on this example a lot, and if you're German, you're probably tired of it. But as an outsider, when you wish someone happy birthday a day or two before their birthday, what's the response to that? It's usually not very positive. Why? What proof is there that wishing someone a happy birthday a day or two before their birthday is going to bring some kind of bad luck into their life? There's none whatsoever. And yet, if you, want to, if you want to do the little experiment, which I would not recommend, but if you want to, you, know, you, could, you could ask a German colleague or something like that, find out when their birthday is, and about a day or two beforehand, wish them happy birthday. And then just kind of note down the, the response to that. 
And I, this is as an outsider. I've been living in Germany now for almost 10 years. It's interesting to me because I see German, Germany as being this curious mix of logic and superstition. It's like logical superstition. While I've been in Germany, I've never had, had people trying to explain to me things like how astral projection is actually a healing technique for my body physically and spiritually. And they've tried to explain it. I've had people try to explain it to me logically. I've had two or three people try to explain to me how astral projection is a way, because I have a lot of chronic pain, how this can help heal my body physically and spiritually and emotionally. One year when we were going to the lake for baptisms, yeah, in the summertime we often go to this lake uh, in Dusseldorf for baptisms, and the lady at the, who took our money as we came in, she's, when she found out we were doing baptisms, her response was, you can't do baptisms here. The water isn't holy. It hasn't been blessed. It's not magically blessed water. Where does that come from? And I can't tell you how many times someone has told me that I need to do things like get my chakras aligned in order to deal with my pain. You know, have some stones set on me somewhere or, or, or have this crystal that aligns my chakras. I'm not really entirely sure what the whole chakra thing's about. But I've been told about it. And this isn't unique. This isn't just Germany. In other parts of the world, you see things like, especially in like native uh, South America, Central and South America, you see this mix of Catholicism and native religion that results in some very bizarre manifestations of faith. In, the Eastern, in Eastern Europe, the Orthodox Church has a lot of mixed-in uh, stories and superstitions from, you know, from their folk, folk tales. In my country, if you're there early in the morning or late at night and you're watching TV, you'll see someone standing on there trying to sell you miracle water. This water will, will perform a miracle in your life. Just send me $20 or whatever. I had a guy, one I sent one time, I wanted to see where this whole thing would go. And he said, if you had this little uh, green handkerchief, it was a prayer cloth. And if you, you sent for the prayer cloth and you prayed holding the cloth, your thing would happen. Your, your, your prayer would come true. This isn't Christianity. That's, that's paganism. And, and, and I found it funny because when I got the cloth, it was like the cheapest piece of green cloth you could possibly find. On TV, it was like this handkerchief made of silk with like a gold embroidery. No, you just got this piece of junk. And then they wanted you to send it back with the money and the prayer request. And then they sent me some things that had all these, these claims of Jesus is on my life, and there's a bunch of red stickers. And as I would pray to those things, I was supposed to take a red sticker, which represented the blood of Jesus, and put it on the, on the, on the statement, and that would make it come true. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. That's pure paganism, believing in some kind of, you know, magic stickers and magic pieces of cloth. That's not the faith. And so when I ask you, are you superstitious, do you have these things in your life in some way? Asian Christianity has a lot of luck kind of incorporated into Christianity. You know, like, do you do these things and you have this luck? Like, if bad things are happening, if good things, if too many good things are happening in your life, do you start to worry about the bad things that are going to have to start happening? A lot of Christians have told me that. Like, all, all these great things are happening. Now I wonder when the bad's going to start. That's not Christianity. That's a belief in karma or, or the yin and the yang. That's not Christianity. A surprising number of Christians believe in reincarnation, that you're going to be reincarnated. That's not Christianity. The Bible says it's up to a man to die once and after that to face judgment. The book of Hebrews talks about that. Reincarnation isn't part of Christianity. That's incorporating a pagan or other faith. Do you think 
that you can buy certain things that have a blessing upon it and it will bring good things into your life, like the little green handkerchief. Or you go to some, some place that's a holy site and you find the gift shop and you can get a little coin, like it's a St. Christopher's medal. A lot of people will have that, believing somehow that is going to make their traveling more safe. That's superstitious. That's not your faith. And so when we look at Peter, and all times we look back, we laugh at these folks. How could you believe in ghosts? Come on. We're not so far. There's a lot of folks, and there may be some of you here who are a little offended right now because I put, poked my finger in one of your little places. You know, you're like, oh, how could people believe in miracle spring water? That's silliness. But when I poke on, say, the St. Christopher's medal, some of you might be going, ooh, but I have that in my car. And I'm sure it saved me from accidents more than once. No, it hasn't. That's just superstition. And you say, well, why does this matter? What's the big deal? Why does it really matter? Well, have you noticed that most superstitions are sources of fear and anxiety? Most of the times we have these superstitions, it's because they're the result of fear. Like something bad happens and we've got to go knock on wood. You know? Have you seen, do you guys have that superstition? They do in my country. Something bad happens and you start looking around. Oh, my goodness. Where's wood? Is that wood? That does nothing. We have some other ones, like if you spill something, if you spill the salt, like like my grandmother's generation, you knock over the salt, you have to pick it up and throw it over your shoulder. Because you're afraid that, you know, something's going to happen. You break a mirror, seven years of bad luck. Whoa, that's going to be a rough seven years. A lot of us must have broken mirrors to have this whole corona thing happen because it's been a rough year. But people think like this. And it's all about anxiety. Have you noticed that? It's all about anxiety. If I don't fulfill this superstition, this bad thing's going to happen to me. It's all about being fearful and anxious and trying to somehow control the uncontrollable. And then during this time of corona, as I mentioned, people have struggled with this whole you know, mental health issues, anxiety issues. People are super anxious about the whole vaccination. I've had several talks about it. Everything from it's the sign of the devil, and if you get vaccinated, your soul dies within you. And let me just tell you, I've been vaccinated, and I didn't hear or feel within me my soul go, I'm melting, I'm melting. Because if someone wanted to, to give me the sign of the devil, or Bill Gates is trying to take over the world, they could have done it with the polio vaccine that I've already received, and most of you have the smallpox vaccine that I've already received in my life, and most of you have. I didn't get the chickenpox vaccine, but if you're 20 and younger, you probably did. There's all kinds of vaccines that we've gotten over the years, and yet we've gotten this anxiety built up, mostly because of misinformation, and people are freaking out. And right now, again, some of you are like, "Hmm." I would just say, you know, this is my opinion, and you can live your life and do what you want. But these superstitions, these misinformations, these things which aren't true just build up with us fear. And fear causes division. Fear causes anger. Fear causes anxiety. And it can happen within the world in general, but it can happen also within the church. I just came back from being in the U.S. I honestly don't think I would have survived as a pastor in the U.S. through this corona year because my particular background is Southern Baptist. It's very, very uh, conservative, and I've I'm fine with their theological conservatism. But the anger and the fear that is there is just incredible. 
And I think if I hadn't gotten on the anti-vax train, I would have gotten on the train out of town. I think I probably would have been fired because of the, the intensity of the anxiety that is there. It's a shame. And so Peter, in a moment of clarity, what does he do? He lets go of his fears. He lets go of his superstitions. And he steps into his faith. And I want to encourage us to do the same thing because Peter is an example here of a guy just for that moment of shedding his misconceptions about God, his false beliefs, shedding the traditions which aren't true, shedding the things he no longer needs to believe, and instead chooses to embrace the reality of Christ. And when he embraces the reality of Christ, he transcends the forces that would have held him down. And he walks on water. And it's only when fear begins to come back into his life that he begins to sink. And at least for a little while, when he's overwhelmed by that fear, he knows where to look. He looks to Jesus, cries out for help, and Jesus is there for him. And I want to encourage you in closing to do a little spiritual inventory while you take your time in prayer this week. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you places where your faith and superstitions collide. And we are, we're a multicultural church, so we come from all these different backgrounds. And maybe some of you have the background of this Maruti kind of feeling, you know, where you can be both the, the Christian and the pagan together at the same time. Some of you may come from, like, the U.S., and you have, we have a lot of our weird little superstitions, like knocking on wood and throwing salt over our shoulder and things like that. Or maybe from Germany, when you get really tense that someone wishes you happy birthday a day or two early. What are the things that promote anxiety within you that are nonsense that don't need to don't need to be bringing this fear into your life but the enemy uses it to keep us in this place of being anxious renounce the false beliefs renounce those things that are producing anxiety and be free because the scripture tells us this you did not receive a spirit which makes you a slave again to fear but you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And it's important to understand that whether you be slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, we all receive the same spirit of sonship because it means we all have the equal standing before God when it comes to the inheritance in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. When we stand before God and have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of sonship, we are all in the same place of receiving our part in the kingdom of God. And it's not a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. It's the spirit that breaks the power of superstition. It's the spirit that breaks the power of misinformation. It's the spirit that breaks the power of these things which hold back and create anxiety and division. And then the other scripture, of course, is the one that we read today. Do not be anxious about anything. The word anxiety and anxious, they're... they're, they're Related words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, how? By prayer and petition. Not by knocking on wood. Not by throwing salt. Not by getting upset with someone when they wish you happy birthday. But by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It transcends superstition. It transcends misinformation. It transcends these things will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Because let me tell you something. One of the fears about you know, this whole idea that you can get vaccinated and it's going to somehow kill your soul, it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. 
And this is not of, not of your own works so that you can't boast. You've been saved by faith through grace. Sorry, I did that backwards. You've been saved by faith through grace. And this is not of yourself, but it's the gift of God, and it's not by works so that no one can boast, and no one can take it away from you. So relax. Trust God. Keep your eyes on Christ. Follow the things that Christ says, not the things that Facebook says, or not the things that, that you have people send you tweets about, or not the things that you, know, you grew up being told, well, you've got to watch out for this particular demonic thing. In, our country, in Lesotho, there's this little demon called the Tokolosi, and that was kind of used to scare kids. You better not go out at night. The Tokolosi might get you. But the problem was, as they grew up as fearful adults, they were still afraid of the Tokolosi. You've been saved by grace through faith. No one, can, no one can touch that. It's been given to you by Jesus. So cast aside the things which are not of God or of any good sense at all and walk with freedom because Christ purchased your freedom through the cross. He purchased your freedom through the shedding of his blood. And he purchased your freedom through his resurrection on the third day. And that is the difference between believing in the supernatural and believing in a superstition. I believe in the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe in the supernatural aspect that, you know, he, could, he was not really recognized until he was, you know, by the disciples and by Mary Magdalene. I believe in that supernatural. What I don't believe in is the superstitions that people try and put into our lives to bring us into a place of fear and anxiety. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for you know, your word, and we thank you for the way your word, uh, really, it is a mir miracle how it is relevant to us in all times and all days and you know, all throughout history. And in a time where we kind of scoff at the idea of ghosts and superstitious things and all that, uh, may we be honest with you and, and have your spirit look into our lives and find what are places where we are believing in forces and powers which are... Uh, the result of superstition or misinformation or things like that, which are causing fear and anxiety in our lives and causing us to be in a place of division. Not just us, but the world. And Lord, we pray that as believers in Christ, we can point people to Jesus. That we wouldn't waste our time trying to point people, you know, away from this political candidate or that political uh, opinion or, or something about the vaccine, but that we would just focus people onto Jesus. Because in Christ, there is the ultimate reality. And we thank you for your, the resurrection. We thank you for the supernatural ways where you have you overcome the laws of nature because you are indeed the one who created all things. And so walking on water, calming a storm, even the overcoming of death is for you. you know, you're the artist. You can make the painting any way you want. But for us, we thank you because it also means for us, you not only just overcame death, but you overcame sin and death. And you allow us a place of eternity, always as your creation, but in your wider creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And we thank you for that, that you made possible through your willingness to empty yourself of your glory, walk among us, die for us, and rise again. And may this be our message to the world. May we not be distracted by other things. May this be our message. Jesus Christ, Lord of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.